Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The Last Sermon is a journey to uncover truth. The film begins with a flashback to the horrific 2003 terrorist attack on a Tel Aviv blues bar called Mike's Place. The Last Sermon then takes us straight into today's headlines, where filmmakers Jack Baxter and Joshua Fowdham, united for life by the tragedy of that terrible night, seeks answer to the to about the suicide bombers who almost murdered them. In doing so, the filmmakers hope to bridge the looming chasm between traditional and radicalized Muslims and non-Muslims worldwide and encourage peaceful coexistence among all people. It is all of that and more. The film, again, is called The Last Sermon, and we're joined today by the director, Jack Baxter. Jack, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you very much. First of all, uh, what you went through and, and what happened at Mike's place is horrible, horrific. I don't know uh, what that would have been like to in, term, in terms of the impact it would have had on my life, but it certainly had a tremendous impact on yours. How did it impact you, not only as a filmmaker, but as a person? This was a, uh, a journey and a film that was 14 years in the making. Um, you know, I, I got blown up at Mike's place, which is right next door uh, to the American embassy or was the American embassy on the Tel Aviv beachfront. Um, while making a documentary about the bar Mike's Place with Joshua Fowdham. After we did finish that film, it was called Blues by the Beach. We actually showed it for, screened it in Los Angeles for uh, Academy Award consideration in 2005. The film itself is our personal journey, Joshua's and mine, to not only find the families of the two suicide bombers who were British. They weren't Palestinians. That's a very important thing that people should know. These were. This was an international terrorist attack. This wasn't, uh, you know, your typical Palestinian suicide bombing in that fact. So to try to find the, the family members of these two suicide bombers, one of whom perished at the scene, the other guy ran away and uh, he was on the lam for about 12 days. It was the biggest manhunt in Israeli history at that time. He was found floating in the, uh, in the harbor in Tel Aviv 12 days later. So going and trying to find these, the families who were put on trial in London for having foreknowledge of the terrorist act. They were put on trial at the Old Bailey and twice, and they were let go. The wife of one of the suicide bombers, his one of the suicide bombers' sisters, and his brother. And they were, they were let go. They were uh, found not guilty. We wanted to, uh, to speak with them about this incident. Also, we wanted to get it on the record because most people don't know that this incident was as uh, far-reaching in its implications. And the biggest implication is, is that on July 7, 2005, the London transit bombing went down and it was immediately released to the media and all press 
that the ringleader and the mastermind of that, the mild-mannered school teacher, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, had visited Israel 10 weeks before the Mike's Place bombing for one day and then left, and that the two suicide bombers that attacked Mike's Place were his best friends. So this didn't come out for those years. If it had, if, if the trail had been followed up, and perhaps it was, maybe they were just letting Mohammed Sadiq Khan roll around in England and see where it led to. But what it led to was the biggest terrorist attack in England, where 52 people were murdered and hundreds of others injured. So we wanted to get all of those pieces together so people would understand the bigger implications of why this happened. April 30th, the date of this, and I was ready to go home. I was one minute away. I was outside uh, Mike's place. I'd already said goodbye to Joshua Fowdham. He went inside to dance. Um, it was jam night and place was packed. I was waiting to say goodbye to uh, Avi Tabib, who was security guard, was also my driver and fixer while I was there. I was, I was one minute away from leaving. I was coming back to New York the next morning. And I was just waiting to say goodbye to Avi when the suicide bomber came up and uh, changed the script. You know, the implications of all of this was that April 30th was the date that the Roadmap for Peace plan, I don't know if people remember that. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was George Bush's uh, big push for peace in, in the Middle East. Um, the UN was involved so-called quartet, the Arab League, everybody was involved in trying to push this peace, which was, you know, going to be the uh, roadmap that would solve the Middle East conflict. This was right at the beginning of the Iraq war. The roadmap for peace plan was scheduled to be presented to Ariel Sharon uh, that morning. This was at one, quarter to one in the morning when the attack went down. Uh, at nine o'clock in the morning, it was going to be presented to Ariel Sharon in Jerusalem and uh, simultaneously by the UN ambassador in Ramallah to uh, the newly appointed foreign minister, Mahmoud Abbas. So, uh, you know, why did they do it on that night? Why would two guys from Great Britain come into Israel, commit a suicide bombing in a place next door to the American embassy? where there were Marines in there from next door, a lot of Americans, Arabs, Israelis, diplomats. Why would they do this on that particular night? Well, the roadmap was going to go down. So um, the implication is, and the bigger story here, is that they didn't want peace. They didn't want the Palestinians to have the roadmap and uh, to agree to it. And they wanted to snuff out um, that peace plan at its birth. And uh, because of that, they pretty much succeeded in, in doing that. They put a, they put a, uh, a bad vibe on the, on the roadmap for peace plan right off the bat when it was announced that, you know, this went down and the American embassy was next door and all of that. Well, that is certainly seems to be the impetus for you to move forward. Obviously, 
the injuries that you sustained, the people who you got to know over the course of doing the, the filming at Mike's place uh, left a, a, a huge impression on you. And you took what I can only assume to be anger and uh, a tremendous amount of animosity and turned it into something else with this film. You you chose to take the path of trying to better understand not only that part of the world, but also the world we live in in terms of immigration patterns Why and, and Islam itself. So um, walk us through some of that sort of mindset that that decision that you made to make this film in a way that is about understanding and to some degree healing well first of all the last sermon the reason why this is called the last sermon is because this is the last sermon of prophet muhammad peace be upon him um his final words um before he died in 632 ce I had memorized a portion of uh, of the last sermon, and I delivered the you know part of that, and you see it in the film. Yeah, um, from my hospital bed in Tel Aviv in two thousand three. That what the prophet said, and it's basically a, an ecumenical uh, statement, a statement of equality among all ethnicities, and could be extrapolated to you know, all religions and all peoples. Now, this is coming from the prophet. Now, considering the fact that people are running around killing people in the name of the prophet, in the name of Islam, the last sermon totally is against that and is very plain. I'll just repeat what the portion that I say, talk about. There is no superiority of an Arab over a non-Arab or of a non-Arab over an Arab or of a white over a black, or of a black over a white, except by righteousness and piety. Now contained in those words is the sentiment that we wanted to convey, not only to the, the family of the two suicide bombers, but we wanted to get answers as we were going. Now, as you know, in the film, and I'm not gonna give it a spoil it, but as we're making this film, um, a, a very serious, suicide bombing attack happens in England as we're on our way. The next day we're on our way to England and all of a sudden this happens. Again, somebody changed the script. At that point, we thought we were, you know, we had a great film about meeting Muslims who were very cool and telling us that Islam is not about murder and, and uh, mayhem and violence and that, uh, Allah does not approve of that, nor does the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Right at that point, once we think that we're just sailing along, having a good time, there is an attack, another serious terrorist attack at the uh, Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. So naturally changes the film. Everything gets a lot more serious. And you see this in the film as it happens. So that's what uh, yeah. that's part of what goes down here. Well, and in your journey, uh, we follow you and Joshua as you, in some ways, you you talk to imams, muftis, you talk to uh, people who are on the ground in Greece and in and in Romania, 
to talk about how immigration from the Middle East, from from the war in Syria is having an impact on Europeans, the resentment that's being built up in Europe over this immigration issue. But throughout the film, you are the sort of the avatar for understanding and for peaceful reconciliation and and a, and also, yeah, as I said, a better understanding of each other in the film. And I was particularly moved by your tracking of immigration from Greece through that part of Europe and into parts of Germany. What did you feel like you learned beyond what we see in the film? Or if you want to kind of talk about what you, what we see in the film in terms of the things that you weren't aware of or just just a, an understanding of why these people who, who are fleeing, what are, they, what are they after? What are they looking for? We heard all kinds of people's stories of, you know, their journey to get to uh, England and why they, I mean, to get to uh, Europe um, and why they did it. Ran into uh, an, an Afghani, uh, very intelligent, well-spoken guy named Mohammed Samir Barakzai, who lived a very good life in Kabul, educated, mother and father, very well-educated, spoke perfect English. He had to flee because he had an assassination out for him in Kabul. He was wounded. His father was wounded at one point. They had to get out of there. He was working for uh, the United States military, you know, doing something for them. Uh, not violent, but, you know, he was doing something for them. And he was targeted by, you know, the Taliban. So he had to get out of there. He left with his family, his mother, his father, his new wife. Who, this guy's only 27 years old. He was 25 when he left. And his younger brother, uh, who is uh, blind, you know, mentally challenged. Yeah, Down syndrome, I think he said, yeah. Yes. He, had to tra he traveled from, from Afghanistan through Europe um, you know, in a harrowing journey, holding the hand of his, of his blind brother, his pregnant wife, his, his mother and father. I mean, some of these stories, uh, you know, are heartbreaking. Now, what we wanted to show in the film is, okay, that's, you know, that's part of the story, but there's also another part of the story, which is the Europeans themselves. There's a, uh, as you know, in, uh, you know, in seeing the film, we go to uh, Hungary, right. which, you know, you have 15,000 refugees showing up every day in these small towns in the middle of nowhere. Um, what, are these, what are the Europeans that live there, the Hungarians and the, uh, you know, these various countries, what are they supposed to think about all of this? They didn't bring this on. Right. They're trying to protect themselves. So people are, uh, you know, going into their houses to juice their phone, to uh, to get, uh, you know, to get to get something to eat, scaring these people in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night. You know, it's a complicated situation. I will tell you one thing that that uh, I really do admire, though, and that's the way the Germans have taken care of this situation. Um, you know, I haven't really, I, I never really spent any time in Germany until I went there, but I can tell you that, uh, 
the German people that we met uh, who have, you know, basically opened their arms to, uh, to the refugees and who have benefited because of that. A lot of these guys coming out of Syria are doctors, very professional people, dentists, you know, and so because they took them and they took the vast, a vast majority of, of these people, they've been able to help their society in Germany um, because they've taken, uh, as they say, the, uh, the cream of the crop. So it's a complicated situation with the refugees. We don't, now there have been refugees that were phony refugees that went into, uh, you know, one guy who went into Germany with a stolen truck and killed people at a Christmas market in Berlin. There's people that are sneaking along for the ride here. Yeah. So it's a complicated situation. We wanted to show all of this in the last sermon and not just, you know, jump on one side of this issue and say, this is the way it is, or, you know, preaching uh, one thing. So we're speaking with Jack Baxter, the director uh, of the film, The Last Sermon, and um, it is out on uh, December 15th on VOD platforms, as well as on digital and cable and VOD platforms uh, on the 15th. So be looking for this. I think the film opens with what I, what I really like about the, uh, the phrase you use but from Don Quixote, which is where there, where there is music, there can be no evil. Thank you. You are a harp player, a blues harp uh, player, and uh, you bring music wherever you go in this film, and you bring an insight and an attempt to understand why we are where we are and how we can get to a better place. It's uh, my congratulations to you for your work here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Again, the film is called The Last Sermon, and we've been talking with the director, Jack Baxter. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.